I am very happy to tell you that we are joined by Ruth Atkins from the Unreal Podcast, and we're going to be talking about the sound session of stories that we had out this month. And we're very excited because it's the first time we've ever kind of just put out two podcasts a week, and we focus on folk tales. And we find sometimes there isn't quite as much scope in the narratives to talk about and delve into. And so we decided to delve into all of the ones that we talked about and told, I mean, told to talk about right now. Sorry about that. And we're going to be doing that right now. But first of all, a little bit of an introduction. You know me, I'm Aaron and Sarah Hegarty, my sister. But Ruth Atkins is over there and she is the creator of Unreal, a podcast that specializes in well, myths and folk tales, and we often try and separate the two and talk about if there's a difference. And uh, Ruth, do you want to tell us a little bit about you and your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you both for for having me on. Um, it's it's really, exci- really exciting to be on. Um, so yeah, uh, my podcast is, is called Unreal, or you'll find it under Unreal Irish Folklore. Um, it's a podcast basically about um, Irish history, stories and tradition. Uh, it's what I say at the start of every every episode. Um, and basically the aim that I have with, with each episode is to track back through history to the origins of different stories. So where did they start out? When did the different elements of the story get added in kind of through history? Um, and also what was the culture and historical events that were happening at the time that it was being told? So what kind of, how did they influence what was being told at the time? Um, and how did the story get built in that way? Um, I think it's it's just really fascinating the way you can learn so much about history and culture um, and the lives people led through the stories they told. Um, I think like you'll know so much about that through being storytellers yourselves. Um, so yeah. Um, Unreal. Unreal. <laughs> say that. Unreal. Uh, it's unreal. It's class. Um, I think you're spot on. It's such an interesting. We've loads to talk about in this Definitely. episode because we'll be getting to a real kind of nail on the head one with soul cages where we kind of change how that evolves, how impossible somewhere else and grown but uh we have such a list of stories to go through right now i guess uh surika we're going to start off talking about well stingy jack and the lanterns and the tradition that these had you told that before you told that to me actually so uh, do you want to tell us about the first time you heard the stingy jack story i think i i think oshin told me that story i think i got that story uh, from Oshin. Um, the other way around. Yeah, no, <laughs> but I also have a suspicion that I heard it when I was a kid, because it's one of those stories which I think often happens with Irish myths and folklore, and, and folklore where you're like, wait, I definitely heard that when I was a kid, but it was definitely a lot simpler and a lot less sweary and a lot more sanitized. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, hear it you want to briefly oh, summarize like, it there sorry oh so there's so stuff in here yeah so stingy mm-hmm. jack is about is essentially the story of a guy who makes a deal with the devil um for you know a, a brief period of of health and wealth seven years and then the devil comes back to collect and dra- jack tricks him and jack tricks him repeatedly until eventually when jack dies and goes to hell the devil doesn't let him in the devil is like no 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 you are worse than me i'm not having you in my house because you've gotten one over on me too many times 
and then sends Jack up to the pearly gates of heaven where um, Jack is rejected because he's a, he's a terrible character because he tricked the devil into giving him wealth and health for years and then goes like back down to hell and the devil throws a coal at his head that lodges inside of his skull that is the light of the lantern and that is where you get that whole thing of like the skull lantern the the carbon face lantern he is doomed to wander the earth until the end of time because neither place will have him in the afterlife and uh yeah that's that's why that's why pumpkin pumpkin lanterns <laughs> so uh that is classic i mean it's it is a bizarre one but it's like it's a quite clearly an irish like mm-hmm. actor, kind of a, the archetype of a trickster almost is in there and he's just a bit of a not a very nice human being, our stingy Jack, is he? Um, but Ruth, you had a, an interesting take on in this as well. I, I didn't mm. quite know that it was in around the same time as Jack and the Beanstalk. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, um, so there's a lot of stories um, that are basically centered around this kind of trickster Jack figure um, where they in England and especially in Cornwall uh, were stories about Jack the giant killer or kind of the one that everybody knows today is like Jack and the is Jack and the Beanstalk and um, basically in those stories the main thing that Jack does is go overseas or go up into the into the sky um to different countries and kills um giants or ogres um and basically the giants and ogres are always kind of bigger and stronger than Jack um but they're quite stupid they're not educated um they're usually cannibals so they they eat people um and basically um in a kind of uh classic english way it's um a bit of a colonial colonial metaphor i don't think you have to read like too deeply into it to not see that too subtle is it no, it's no not that subtle um, at all. so it's kind of um the idea of this lovable english rogue um going over and taming the wild civilizations of other countries. Um, So I kind of, I hadn't heard about it as a child, but I came across it while researching um, the story of the giant's causeway. um, So Fionn and the Scots giant, um, which is kind of similar, but it's actually really interesting how um, both in Stingy Jack and in the story of um, uh, Fionn and and the giant's causeway, it sort of turns that um, that colonial metaphor on its head because in Ireland we weren't going out and colonizing people; people were coming over and colonizing us ourselves. So um, you get that situation where this outside force, so sometimes it's a giant, sometimes it's a devil, sometimes it's death itself, comes back to Ireland, and the hero, the trickster hero, has to outsmart this um, this. Op- Presser, this uh, overseas oppressor who comes in and kills it. So I just find that so fascinating to see how two different cultures have such a different take on what makes a hero and what makes a villain. Um, classic, yeah. classic yeah. Irish archetype. Interpretation actually of the of the the Jack and the Beanstalk story from yeah. There's a group over from um, from California Polytechnic. Russell, do you remember Russell Swanigan? Aaron, you met him at a gig. Um, and one of his students had come up, come up with yeah, a of Jack and the Beanstalk where she said, oh, it's, it's a colonization of Ireland because they take the gold. He takes the gold successfully. He takes the, the, the food successfully. And then he tries to take the harp and the harp turns against him. And the harp is, is, is an Irish instrument. 
And I'd never oh, made that connection. Before. I love that. Yes. Yeah. I had the same reaction. I was like, oh my God, it That's is. Brilliant. That's such a good reading. Yeah. And the harp does like <laughs> And the, and like that's actually kind of true to what happened. Yeah. Well, it was it was Irish it was Irish culture that was resilient and and ended up being the thing that that kind of united people to to yes. fight back. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, com- completely. Yeah. Um, that's mental. And I don't know. Like, there's something about the the fact that he's a trickster as well. And like in again, Fiona Cool against the Giant. If you haven't heard that one, go over to YouTube our page with a uh, candle little tales. We have a nice little illustration oh. there. Um, <laughs> but that's a great story where Fionn doesn't, for once, take out the sword and shield and battle as a warrior. He he finds a way, asking his wife, of course, uh, for help and uses tricks and cunning and guile to get out of trouble. So it doesn't seem like a very Fionn story, but he's he's, gonna, he's kind of put into that as a trickster or I, I you know, feel his, like his wife Una is. And again, one of those stories where like, you know, the way folktales spread, and you'll probably know a lot more about this than I do, Ruth, that like you'll get the folktale in a, in a different country and it will just, you know, our folk hero is Fionn. So now Fionn is the main character in yeah. the story. Or our folk hero exactly. is, Jack, yeah. Jack yeah. is the main character. And everything else is kind of kept pretty much the same. So I've always thought that yeah. was probably not really a Fionn story. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite link with his personality, does it? It's like, okay, we'll call him Fionn, but um, that's a bit of a stretch. Like, but again, yeah. I guess it's kind of interesting to look at the motif of how to get out of trouble, to win your way out of trouble by cunning, and the fact that Jack is the protagonist of the story. He's playing tricks and devil, and we love him for it because yeah. even though he kind of loses in the end, even though he's told to walk, he gets kicked out of hell. He kind of he he has this deadly job of bringing the lost souls down to hell and uh, he's he's forever remembered and immortalized with the jack-o'-lantern so you know maybe he does win after all um I mean, it's a better th- win than ending up in hell you know well, it's, I, it's kind of like a, a literal damned if you do damned if you don't kind of <laughs> and like, <laughs> I, I always feel yeah. like it's one There's of those stories I always feel like it's one of those stories where like the moral of the story you've got to kind of work quite hard to find the moral of the story like the moral of the story is yeah yeah absolutely yeah really I thought the moral of the story was be like Jack you rule yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah gets away with it in the end he gets Um, buries the souls of the dead no consequences just be cleverer and there's no consequences I just love the fact that as well, though, that, you know, it, it, more people now are ter- are carving turnips in Ireland just to be like, we're not carving pumpkins like the Americans anymore. We're going to go back and carve turnips because they're kind of freakier. They're scary. They're hard to carve. They're, they're little demented little fair- fellas. Like, they're just like, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was the original lantern. Like, what? Yeah. What? Why I turnips? Think- I think that's so cool. And I think um, it's really interesting um, that the Jack stories and by, I guess, extension, Stingy Jack were kind of around in that like early 19th century, so kind of around the 1830s was when they were being shared at their kind of 
peak peak of being being sort of told and shared and, and loved and so you can see the clear line then from the Irish famine happening like about 15 years later this wave of, of Irish migration they needed they were couldn't find turnips to carve presumably um, so they, they looked for something else or they saw the, the pumpkins they're like oh that's cool I'll, I'll carve those instead so you, you can kind of see um, unbelievably yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. no it's, it's, it's quite an obvious diaspora thing yeah. The choice of turn up in a pumpkin I mean, carved. I think you're gonna go. You're gonna go pumpkin every time. Because really, yeah, turnips are a nightmare. It's cool and orange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Can you imagine the first guy who found them was like, "What? Fuck those turnips, guys! I got this massive, practically hollow thing to carve." Already um, basically head shaped. <laughs> <too easy. laughs> yeah, look, it's metal. <laughs> All right, so look, we've loads of stories. Second story we want to talk about is the Darig Do. Okay, um, again, there's sometimes these folk tales. They we can talk about a myth for some sometimes for ages because there's other perspectives, there's other personalities, there's bigger backstories. We don't know who Jack was. The devil is kind of uh, a trope and thrown in there. Uh, the Darig Do is another one who we don't know that much about, and it's you know it's the Irish vampire story. It's the woman that's, that has uh, lost her name. But it's there's a revenge aspect to it, and Sorok, you told us beautifully more kind of uh, gruesomely than I have heard it before. But I guess that's what happens when you get left alone in the shafas. Um. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I'm stuck in the shafas all day, and I was telling a story about uh, somebody who gets locked in a tower, and I went a little bit crazy because it's a cool <laughs> story to go a little bit crazy with. You have heard it that gruesomely before because you've heard me tell it live. I mean, there's just something different about like when you just have it plugged in and you Deep just get in. You've got this kind of, you had this sort of rage kind of <laughs> simmering under your voice. It was so, I've so enjoyed listening to that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, touche. So hard to tap into my rage. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about, we've talked about this, um, this story before and like I've, thought ah oh, well it's what like there's a few kind of blood sucking uh fae there's a few fae that seem to have uh you know drained bodies of blood and at one stage i thought ah you know this makes sense to be a bram stoker um potentially uh, something that inspired him to to write dracula uh I, ruth you mentioned it might it might be too and uh, not quite line up uh historically with with that uh proposition yeah uh, well I don't to be honest I don't know enough about it uh, about this particular story I haven't researched it very deeply um the only kind of sources I've seen have been 20th century um sources and the kind of more modern stories when they sort of cite it back to kind of older ones when I've kind of gone and looked it tended not to be sort of the story in a recognizable form so it might just be that I haven't seen it but I, I think it's probably not quite um quite as ancient but it is such a good story that I'm like glad that it's in our kind of repertoire it's so meaty it's also the kind of thing of like I think that's one of the really interesting things about folklore is that sort of there's always that kind of you know cross-pollination thing going on mm. like the story crops up somewhere else and it's like oh it's inspired by this tradition but then that tradition will go oh you did a cool thing on that we're just going to take that back and like it, there's, it, yeah. it's continually evolving um, and it's continually coming up with new stuff. And like there's, there is, I know there are stories um, and I kind of mentioned them at the start of that podcast. There, there were definitely stories of like the hungry dead 
which I think are mm. kind of quite horrifying. They're not necessarily to do with blood, but there is that like really ter- like that thing that you see in the Dracula book of like somebody who's dead coming back and like knocking on your window and going, let me in, which is deeply creepy. <laughs> Oh, you know, he probably, how much he took from Irish folklore, I think is is a really interesting question, but it's probably unanswerable because, I mean, he he apparently got these Mm. from a nanny and who knows what she was telling the kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, nothing, nothing that children should be hearing, clearly. But <laughs> that, I, ha- I might have an issue with that. Um, <laughs> I think you'll find, um, before, I do want to mention something about the stories that we expose a culture to and the stories that we protect people from and the consequences of it, because I think that actually is quite a significant thing. If Bram Stoker wrote a book and managed to get it out of his head and on the paper, that's a far more um, potentially beneficial and positive thing than not being exposed to that and having, uh, well, a whole other lot of that's true, things yeah. However, before I get to that point, or I flesh out that point a bit further, so okay, we've talked about the theme of this story. I think it's a really nice one to nail down on because it's essentially between the, again, just to summarize the story, a woman gets uh, locked in a tower by an awful landlord who buys her off her poor peasant father and who he forgets about her and leaves her off. And her lover boy, another far- poor farmer, leaves her off and marries someone else. And everyone in the town knows that something's happening to her. Everyone in knows everyone in the town ignores it. And it's the silence that she punishes she goes back and she kills the abuser but she kills those people who stood idly by watched it and didn't do anything so it's this massive lesson for if you know abuse is happening don't fucking stay silent about it Mm. and i mean i think it's also like it's a very kind of i really liked that detail and i did read that detail that like she punishes those who who failed to help but I really seized on that as well, because I kind of think like that's, you know, you were talking as well, Ruth, before about um, or when we were when we were talking before this podcast, you were talking about like the way that folk, folk tales yeah. evolve. And I think that was kind of something that I really yeah. seized on because it just seemed really relevant, like all of the kind of stuff that's happening, you know, the, the protests around black lives and and different kind of social movements that are happening these days. A lot of them are about actually being innocent is not good enough not having done the thing yourself is not good enough. You're letting it happen. And that makes you complicit. So true. That, that means you have something to answer for. So I thought that was a really, that was something that I that I kind of seized on. Do you want to say more about that, Ruth? The, the evolution of folktale? Oh, definitely. Well, I think that um, cultures basically choose the folktales that most are most sort of needed for them to sort of process the experiences that they've had. Um, so I feel like, you know, there's there's few more, it's no wonder that, that Dark Do has become such a kind of popular story in more recent times um, because it kind of speaks to that, um, that feeling people have of, you know, of the sort of complicit nature of a, that, that a lot of people are complicit in, in quite terrible things without necessarily feeling that they are so that while you might feel you're innocent are you as innocent as you as you think and so you do you definitely see that um you know with more 
modern kind of myths of the modern age as well. So things like the the Momo panic of last year with that kind of weird creature that um, that everybody was freaked out about for a couple of weeks that was like haunting the internet. Um, you see it as well, say, um, you know, a lot of teenagers have this um, myth of blue waffle, this, uh, I, I suppose this might be not very, um, not safe for work, but this basically um, kind of haunted uh, sexually trans transmitted disease. Um, and it's kind of like people, teens kind of tell each other about it and it becomes this quite like uh myth that speaks to a sort of fear people have about their sexuality and so for each kind of culture and kind of like little microcosm of you know the teenage age the adult age everybody kind of builds these these myths of their own to sort of help them explain and process the things that are happening to them and the things they are feeling and I just find that yeah really a really fascinating um, way yes. that folklore can tell us about about thank, our age. Thank you for explaining Blue Waffle. I had no idea what that was. Oh God! Um, <laughs> <laughs> for my my time as a as a teen, maybe that was just temporary. Who knows? <laughs> I'm, I'm, knows. I'm so out of touch. Um, but no, I think it's I think that. But that's one of the things that like we we often talk about as well in terms of like myths and folklores and and folklore. Like they're not. It's not dead you know people tend to think mm. of it as kind of a musty thing that happens in books and that isn't really relevant and I think that's one of the things that you know certainly you're doing in, in Unreal and that we're doing in Candlelit Tales as well is like kind of going well no if you go back and you look at these stories you will find a resonance and it might not be exactly the same resonance as the first person to tell Darig Do found but it's the resonance that I found and yeah resonance that you know maybe a modern audience will connect with so I think like that's the kind of interesting thing about these stories is that yeah they 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 might they might morph they might change the emphasis might change but the the yeah whatever we need to find in them is what we'll find in them and that's that's yeah kind of the function of stories in some way so. that's a really it is a it's a really interesting topic of like of how a culture will process something and what stories come out of it. And speaking of silence, um, I think uh, something came out this week that was pretty shocking. And usually we don't talk about kind of current affairs because we're always talking about um, uh, you know myths and folklore. But I, I, I kind of want I kind of have I was went for a big long walk yesterday trying to process this and figure this out. Because, you know, 50 guys started sharing a load of photographs that have been kept and secretly uh, stockpiled from women that have been sharing them intimately with, um, you know, people that they trusted. And ultimately that, that trust was ultimately broken. And there was no, there has been no repercussion for those people. And it is no completely, you know, if, if any of those women call those men out, they're caught on defamation of character. And it's a really fucked up thing in society at the moment that that's actually happening and also i kind of have to go back back a little bit and go hang on a second what you said i said there at the start ruth the stories we protect people from are they ways of letting people build up a sense of entitlement a sense of authority over others that they don't necessarily have and by reducing female characters in irish mythology that we see again and again and again and again are we not meeting these fully fleshed out individuals in a way as children as young adults as teenagers as ways that are very much 
to the fore of how people interact with these world people, but as young boys seeing just another damsel in distress, another woman to be seen, another sought after prize, a thing to put on their arm, are we continually belittling women by by not having these dark, vengeful, fucking badasses that go out and do the same that Fiona Cool and Cullen do because we we, we temper it too much and we, we say that men are in, in certainly when I grew up as a kid and a teenager men are the warriors and women are the are the sexual lure um, that's my rant I would mm-hmm. open the floor to you guys <laughs> it's a good rant it's a good rant great rant because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was fucking pissed off this week guys yeah. I don't know about you guys yeah no I mean short, my short answer to that is yes absolutely uh, dehumanization of women and female characters in stories absolutely categorically mm-hmm. has an effect on society. Um, it is like, how could it not? Um, it, it is like beyond question for me that if you grow up seeing stories where men are the only ones who have agency or male characters, the only ones who have any agency and girls are always the sidekick or the prize, uh, yeah, absolutely you will you will that will have an influence on your brain because you know stories are how we construct our reality in a big way and i think it it's it's something that i think yeah definitely uh do you want to add anything to my just slightly incoherent yeah um no i i yeah i completely agree as well um and it's not just the myths that we're protected from but the myths that we choose to tell as well and I think especially um yeah in the kind of male sphere I think there's a lot of self-mythologizing um kind of creating a myth where you're the victim and all of these women are you know owe their affection to you owe their owe the naked pictures that they send to you um and that is to an extent, um, a fiction, you know, a fiction and a myth that, that you tell yourself, you say, these rapists are, um, you know, monsters, I'm not a monster, so I can't be, um, I can't be what they're saying. It's kind of a, a myth that, so myths can, can have good and bad impacts as well. So it's definitely, it's what you choose to tell and how you choose to tell it that, that can really, um, you know, have, have completely a watershed um, impacts on on culture and on people's very real lives. I definitely think that. I think that's actually a really yeah. good point as well about the like the the demonizing of like sexual predators mm. and this idea that you know that is a different category of a person, uh, and it's not. It's very 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 like close to home. There are yeah. a huge number of people, and I think you're right. It's it it enables people to deny. And it enables people to, you see it happen in families as well, where people are like, oh, well, my my husband or my son would never do such a thing. Or my wife or my daughter would never do such a thing. And therefore, you know, we cannot countenance because that's what monsters do. And this is a person that I know as a human being. Therefore, they couldn't have done that because they're not a monster. Um, and so there's a weird thing with, with like, particularly sexual crimes in, in our culture, I think, where because they are treated as such a monstrous thing, they're actually, it actually diminishes responsibility for them because yeah. the effect of that is that it's like, well, no, only, only unhuman people do that. Therefore, nobody I know does that. Therefore, it doesn't fuck yeah. Yeah. Because everybody knows it, somebody. It kind of allows people to, sorry. 
totally it allows people to kind of shy away from kind of a real reckoning yeah i, I, I agree with that and the delusions i mean i, I love i love that idea ruth that that we tell ourselves myths, you know, like we, we, as you said, Turk as well, we form a reality based on the stories that we tell ourselves. And it is all a myth, you know, essentially we're, we're living in an unreal, intangible way of fucking the world. It's, it's, it's very uh, ethereal when you kind of break it down to its um, uh, elements, I guess. And we're all, you know, perceiving one version of, of a reality that we're trying to cohabit and share. And I just have heard a lot of people, a lot of women talk about, the, about it this week and found, you know, a few, very few male voices, even on my own social media feed, and kind of just been a bit like, come on, fuck, lads. What the flying fuck would be on about? Uh, why isn't anyone everybody a bit outraged because it is a little bit like if you're if you're going to take this Derek Dew story as something that is serves a greater meaning uh, serves a greater purpose and the more I tell stories the more I look into stories the more I, I research and find out the crux of them the, 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 the more I think that actually looking at stories is one of the most important things anyone can do you know because it's how culture constructs reality it's how we find our place in the world it's how we understand different cultures and ways of of navigating the world as well and there's just so much and if you take the new story as a lesson then it's time to throw up the throw the curtains and shout out the window and you know raise raise the voices a bit because um it's not fucking on all right it's not fucking <laughs> on uh, and and if you have a young boy go tell him go scare the shit out of him Go scare the shit out of them with that story. Uh, they're probably doing good. Uh, <laughs> not giving parenting advice. Not giving parenting advice. No, no, we don't That's give parenting advice. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, apologies. I'll, I'll retract with that. <laughs> okay, that's a good rant. And we rarely talk about um, uh, current affairs. So let's mm. move on to the next topic, which is briefly something when I look at, which is the Piper and the Puka, because the Puka Sarka is a is a character that has come up again and again and again as we look at these stories. And there's loads of stories of the Puka, but he's another former trickster. And he's, the he's also great stuff about Puka around Halloween because you know the Puka goes around and pees on all the blackberries and all the mushrooms. The number of times I've nearly seen, you know, after November, there was like two weeks of mild weather, and I kept on like seeing a blackberry that looked ripe. So go, don't do it, Aaron. don't do it. Oh, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. That's 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 puka weed. Um, yeah, no, there's a there's a whole uh there's a whole tradition around the puka because the the kind of sawan is is very much part of the puka folklore and that's that turning point of the year. Um he's one of the figures that that uh kind of yeah is is intimately linked with that um but he's a he's a relatively benign trickster like he looks a little bit like the the Achishka, um the water horse the kelpie but he tends to not drown people as the kelpie does the puka can turn into a horse and and you know if you get up on his back he'll ride around the countryside but more for shits and giggles than murder I mean, he, he keeps on just popping up, doing a fun thing. But again, this is where I'm like, did, was there a constructed tale about the puka? When puka means ghost and puki means kind of fail. Like, you know, was there just, was there lots of tricksters and it just became the one and we said, you know, just give him the name. I reckon 
I reckon, and this is one of the things about, you know, folktales and, and regional variation. I reckon the word puka is probably a generic word for like a spirit because you mm. you have a lot of stories about puka that like, if you're trying to put them all together into one personality, it doesn't really make sense. But if you kind of go like, yeah, well, I mean, in one place, the puka is this and he's a horse. And in another place, the puka is this and he's a dog. And another place, the puka is this and he's an old man who shows up and does all your chores until you thank him and then he leaves. Um, you know, it, 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 to me, that, that makes more sense as an interpretation, but I don't yeah. know enough about it. <laughs> well, I, I, did a good, I did a fair amount of research in this when I was looking up the Piper in the book because it was, it was one of my favourite stories that I found about the puka. And so, but again... He crops up in Waterford as an eagle, in Derry as a small goblin man called the Puka. In Kildare, I think it's he's a black hole, um, like literally a black hole. Um, there's a horse he's he's seen. I think it's Cork where he's, um, you know, maybe not, but in in somewhere in Munster as well. He's a rabbit, um, and he would have uh, in, been a good chance that uh, the story of the puka would inf uh, influence the, the mask in Donnie Darko. This kind of stuff is just, you keep on seeing little traces of it. And that whole uh, thing, which is just like, what? But the, the baffling thing about him, like the leprechaun, he's kind of like the chloricon, which is again similar mm. to the leprechaun in that he comes up, chloricon kind of help you out for a while. But if you thank the puka, like he's come to lots of manor houses and help all the servants with all the, the washing up and they stop washing up and cleaning and all of a sudden they come down and one fellow goes, ah, Jess, thanks for that, that's great. Here I made you a coat. And the puka fucks off. And everyone's like, dude, who the fuck do you thank the puka? Um, nice you know? people who do all your work for you. Good God, there's a social order to be maintained, man. You gotta treat him like shit. So what the fuck is the metaphor there? I'm like, is there is there any point in looking for meaning there? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I think they, Leonard says that she's pretty sure she's met a puka or two in her time. Um, sorry, Bruce, over to you. Oh yeah, there's, there seems to be so many kind of arbitrary rules that you have to follow in folklore. And like sometimes they have, like if it's um, say like the goose that lay the golden eggs, I think it's like the moral of that story is, you know, don't kind of look too, you know, don't don't kind of cut open something at when you're when you're like getting the good out of it already don't try and like be greedy for more and sometimes that's the moral when it's like fair um leprechauns and, and pukas and things like that and sometimes it's just like actually i'm struggling to find what what the right thing to do is i don't quite understand why this is the right thing to do above the other things so it's, it's quite funny yeah there's a there's yeah, a great poem by neil gaiman uh i can't remember the name of it but it it, it is it is to do with going into fairyland and it basically is just him going like these are all the rules of, of, of like fairy tales. So if you happen to go in there, make sure you stay on the path. And if you come to this, do this. And like, don't ask questions. And like, he just kind of goes through all of the rules of folklore of like, you know, so cool. happens. And it's, it's very, very cool. Um, I, I will think of the name at some point, but it's very cool. Um, but yeah, like there's, 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 this is where I think it's really funny to kind of get into the, the whole thing about like the moral of the story because, and we talked about that a little bit earlier, um, because like sometimes there, it, it's, it's not really a moral. Like you can see people trying to turn it into a moral because these are tales for children. But like, yeah, I don't think to me, to me it's, it would suggest that they probably didn't start as moralistic stories. But yeah. at some point people started to go, oh, well, since these are for kids now, 
we need to make there be a lesson <laughs> and therefore yeah. this is the lesson but like a lot of the time they're not and a lot of the, like I think that's really just you know a lot of the time it's like well if something nice is happening don't question it don't poke at it don't change any of the circumstances because you don't know why it's happening so just leave it alone and, and enjoy it and don't yeah try and not upset the balance because you don't know why this is happening at all so just don't do it go with it dude just fucking don't fucking say anything just go with it keep the head down you know march on fucking hell right don't fuck with it that's basically uh, the, you know that might even be like a bit of a warning to us like folklorists like don't don't kind of delve into the depths don't like you know just take the story for what it is you're having a good yeah, time yeah. you like <laughs> why yeah, you don't to, like, make something call work? up the fucking spirits dude all right just fucking just you know stay on surface level surface level is fine um so another trickster we came across is the fire Darig. and again i didn't really know that much about him but we kind of entered into a whole oh this is the changeling kind of sequence of stories and we we found one and ruth you, you've recently done an whole, a whole episode on mm. on kind of that and man is it a big topic in irish, irish folklore uh you know yates is the uh, human child poem come away with me oh, human child the water and the wild with the fairy hand in hand uh, this world is more, far more full of weeping than you can understand. That's slightly wrong. Um, but then and there's the rest of the poem. But it's a beautiful poem and it's inspired so many uh, variations, so many other tales. And again, it's going back to a time when we're using, we're looking at folk tales as explaining more about the world, I think. And certainly, you know, when there is a high level of infanticide, when there, the, the stories and reports of, of the changelings were there, when you have children being swapped out for an unwanted fairy and mothers and parents and families and town folk are going, that's a changeling, kill it, and leaving it out in the forest or, or putting it into the fire or, um, you know, whatever the hell the cure was, chopping off all its arms and legs was one in Wexford, I think. And you have, you have accounts of the actual court cases uh, in one of the folktale uh, books that we came across. It's like, ah, ah. So there's this whole plethora of stuff uh, with with uh, the changeling, and the Fardarig seems to be a character who really loves stealing kids away and leaving behind. I don't know a changeling. So, could you want to just tell us a little bit about what you know about the changeling kind of arc? I think similar to yourself, I mostly know it as um, you know it it was something that was like it, it was it was a practice. This is a cultural practice that was a problem. Uh, and, and like there are court documents, there are court cases of families murdering special needs children um, or what we would call today special needs children. And, and the, the defense was, well, that was a changeling. So like it's, it's a fairly horrifying cultural practice that we had here in Ireland. And I mean, mostly, I think the, the stories that we tell about it, uh, you have the one of the Brewery, Brewery of Eggshells, which I think is in the Candle Little Tales playlist on YouTube, um, where the mother is too soft-hearted to try any of the cure and, and gets a kind of a magical way around it. Um, and that's kind of mostly how they actually work in the stories that I've come across. Um, but what, what about you, Ruth? Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit more about about changelings 
Yeah, so um, I was doing, um, as Erin as said, I did um, four episodes this year on um, uh, accusations of witchcraft in Ireland. So um, I talked about, um, you know, the, the first case was um, Alice Kittler in, in kind of the, I think around the 12th or 13th century, um, which was Catholic. Um, then some of the more famous ones after that were kind of Florence Newton and Island McGee, which were actually Presbyterian and Puritan cases, which was kind of closer to um, the European um, trials for witchcraft or like the Salem witch trials were kind of Puritan communities. But then after those kind of ended in the sort of 17th century, you get a bit of a lull in terms of court cases. Um, so that kind of was brought to an end. But within um, Catholic um, communities, in, within poorer Irish communities, oppressed Irish communities, um, you got this kind of isolation and this return to a superstitious way of looking at the world. Um, and there, rather than witches, it was uh, always kind of fairies. And, you know, Irish fairies are not... Um, nice things um, they're terrifying um and so you got this uh situation of um people describing sick women or sick children as being fairy struck so sometimes that meant that um the that the um fairies had kind of cursed them so that they would sort of waste away and then join them in the fairy realm sometimes it meant that they had already taken them and they'd left behind sort of this imposter figure um in in this place so like a changeling kind of figure um and it's really an example of how uh folklore can go so wrong sometimes and have such uh, harmful consequences um because it was believed not as a kind of fun um, story to tell around the fire but like very devoutly believed by these very religious um, and very isolated communities um, so that you start to see in the 19th century um, as you were saying circa uh, quite a few cases of people with disabilities with disfigurements um, being tortured being exercised um, and you know, suffering quite grievously and sometimes even dying. So in 1850, there was um, a case reported of the six-year-old girl um, who had been, um, yeah, accused basically of being kind of fairy struck. Um, the family, there was a, the cure in Tipperary was to kind of put the child out on a sort of shovel at nighttime. I think there was kind of a bit of sort of pulling and pulling and pushing and sort of shaking the shovel around but through the shaking or through the exposure to the cold um the child the child died um and so you got those kind of starting to be recorded in sort of um the kind of upper class media so in in kind of British media and American media and then it all kind of came to a head in um the story that I the kind of last story that I talked about on my podcast which was um the burning of Bridget Cleary Mm. Just before we get into Bridget yeah. Clear, it's such a massive topic. I just want to kind of, yeah, like, oh, God, it, it, that whole idea of going, just going back over to the change thing, because, again, from the little I know about it was my, actually six years ago, Sarka, hilariously enough, uh, before just before we started Canada Tales, I was working down in Kilkenny um, with Barnstorm Theatre, who were 
working with um, and a fantastic writer, Michael Key. Uh, oh, I'll forget his name. I'll, put it, I'll, I'll mention it again. Um, but they, they did the show called The Ice Child. Again, it was four fairies coming up with uh, a way to steal a child away and replay and leave one of their fairies behind and then tell the story as, as it went. But it was, you know, through, through looking at it, you can leave a log behind, you can leave a, a bit of turf behind or an unwanted fairy and the fairy will eat the house out of how uh, eat, eat the cupboard and not fill up it'll constantly wail it'll be cold to touch it'll you know all of the things that you would ultimately put down to some form of a, um i guess any uh, what you call it um, i'm searching for uh, for divergence spectrum yeah the spectrum of like autism or um Asperger's syndromes, like things like that, where like personality disorders, that where people don't like to be touched, or um, you know, simple enough explanations. A complete belief there that a fairy comes in, and I guess the whole idea of the British looking at the Irish as maniacs and savages and and leaving children out in the wilds because they believe it's a fairy. It's like ah, jeez, like yeah, that's kind of that's. Uh, I mean, that's chicken and egg. Um, people, people may be left out in the cold because they were starving and they couldn't feed a baby that couldn't work. <laughs> or they couldn't feed a child that wasn't going to be able to help out in the farm in two years because, you know, I, I think these things are, are uh, linked. Um, I think that kind of oh, poverty totally, and desperation totally. definitely uh, is a factor. It really shines a light on... The dark side of, as you said, Ruth, the dark side of, of folklore and myths where where things can go wrong if you believe in these too much. It's all well and good to kind of have a superstition or a, a love, love romantic kind of idea, an ideal of fairy kind. But when we as a nation know that you don't knock down rats, you don't make, you know, we, we still make have motorways that go around uh fairy forts you know there's a fairy fort there's a raft close by my house here and it's you know it's people go through all the time it's on farmers land and it's you know it's it they they cut the grass around it they leave it you know they leave it alone and everyone did like kind of goes up there and and love being there but it's it's, it's a fairy fort you know everyone knows it's like you don't you don't want to mess with it overly you know, and then there's a kind of, and you know, uh, there's a, a lovely kind of sense of being almost in another world in, in being there, and you kind of get that feeling when, when you're in, in those areas. And I guess the um, before we get to the Bridget Cleary uh, story, because she's so famous, Sorica, you found one, um, Biddy Early, which I had never Biddy heard Purcell. of before. Biddy Purcell, sorry. Actually, I think I think I was a little unclear as to how to pronounce your name because I was pretty sure it was Purcell and I was also pretty sure it was Purcell. And I was very, very convinced of that, but I changed my mind halfway through telling the story and didn't notice until <laughs> long after. So apologies to anyone whose surname was Purcell because... Uh, I know you introduced it as Biddy Purcell as well. Uh, yeah, no, I know. Apparently, apparently the Irish version is not Purcell. It's Purcell or Purcell. And I was like, oh, cool, I'll do that. And then... I got confused. And then you did the other one anyway. So we got all three of them. <laughs> we got all three of them. Cross yeah, that, was, that, was a, that was a story that I found in um, a book of folktales that I was, I was kind of using for my folktale research, which is Thomas Crofton Taylor. Is that his name? Uh, Crofton Croker, yeah. Crofton yeah. Croker, that's right. Yeah. Which, which uh, was a really like 
this one was present presented as being told to him by the sister uh which is just a terrifying idea that you had you had two sisters and the younger one told the story of what happened to her older sister um i definitely kind of took some liberties with the structure as i always do but like that's that was the story of, of the taking of Billy purcell uh Apparently, there's a whole lot about Thomas Croft and Croker that I didn't know about and that Ruth knew about. Um, I'm going to pass over to you for a second because I was like, no way. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I could talk about him. I, I could actually probably talk about him a little bit more um, in more, a little bit more depth with the Soul Cages um, story. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think he's such an interesting, interesting figure, um, a much earlier sort of folklore collector than um the more kind of well alone ones like um lady gregory uh, so yeah I'd, I'd love to talk about him um but yeah yeah we can momentarily guys so yeah i mean the the, the taking of biddy per cell per sale per cell per cell and uh, whatever we're going to call her um that was a creepy story i hadn't heard it before it's this idea that an adult can be taken and you know, another fairy with their shape, with their image, with their yeah. voice can speak and be left behind. And that has fairly fucking drastic ramifications in a culture who believe that shit. And the last witch burned, the last woman burned mm. alive in Ireland. Um, I saw your eyes pop there as a colour of witch. How dare you? Um, but it's known as the last witch in Ireland. Mm. And it's a story that I've seen. I've seen it on stage. I've seen it done twice on stage. It's a one-woman show. I've seen it done um, uh, in the Abbey not so long ago. Um, and and, and re-looking re re at what how significant that story was. Because essentially, you know, a, a, a guy was convinced his wife was taken by the fairies mm -hmm. and got the whole town in tip, up in raids, up in arms, and... Uh, you did a whole fantastic episode on this. So if you do want to hear the whole thing, go over to Unreal. It's Unreal. Uh, and <laughs> hear about it. But can you give us a bit of your findings and what you, what you as, as a kind of a researcher found out about poor old Bridget Cleary? Yeah, so I was interested in, in Bridget Cleary. Um, obviously, like yourself, I'd, I'd heard it. It's kind of the story that kind of catch, captures a lot of people's imaginations. It's such a gothic such a horrendous story that I think it, it's really kind of stayed with people um so I'd heard about it before um and it happened in Tipperary where I'm from um so it was kind of interesting to research that that part as well um and basically um it happened around 1895 so you know not that long ago really um but Bridget Boland um Mary, her married name was Bridget Cleary um basically fell ill uh, she probably had bronchitis something like that her her husband um, and you know we'll never really know how much her husband believed in the superstition and how much he just wanted to you know wanted to kill her um, but he basically convinced the people around them so in the community and not just in the community, but actually, you know, Bridget's neighbors, Bridget's relatives, her father, her cousins, um, that she had been taken by the fairies, that the woman who was lying in the bed sick was not Bridget anymore, um, that it was this fairy imposter. And over um, a period of about, about um, a week all told, but kind of, particularly over kind of two nights um the community came together and um 
did their best to exercise her of this um, fairy spirit. And oh god, worst in, two days ever. It was horrendous. Um, I, you know, I <laughs> did my best, you know, to make it kind, make the episode kind of palatable to listeners. So I left a fair amount of the violence out. There's still a fair amount in it, but. Um, you know, she was subjected to horrendous torture over two, you know, very long nights. Um, there, there, there was a lot of people, you know, we talked about people in the community kind of knowing things and saying nothing. The, the priest, uh, the local priest was invited um, to come, you know, to say, give her last rites to say mass. He didn't see what, what happened, but I find it like quite difficult to believe that he didn't see the distress that she was in, um, the pain that she was clearly in. Um, he said nothing. Um, and, you know, even when Bridget was actually dead, he, he did very little to, to help. Um, but part of the reason that we know the story so well is it became kind of, you know, an early sort of true crime story that kind of traveled the world. It sort of, um, there were sort of blow by blow accounts in the Pall Mall Gazette in London and um, also in the New York Times. Um, it went to like the Bismarck Tribune in, in, in Dakota and in the United wow. States. It just traveled everywhere. Um, and so the whole world was kind of watching the, um, or kind of reading about the, the trial that had happened and all of the details were kind of being published kind of blow by blow in, in, the, in the trial, uh, in the, um, the papers. Because um, I suppose it's just after when this, you know, the whole witch hunt thing in Europe was kind of socially mm. acceptable, you know. Uh, yeah, it's approximately so I, an old lady, um, too, you know, too, 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 too young. Um, yeah so at this stage like (laughs) most of the developed world you know did not believe in witches and couldn't believe that there were kind of still communities I mean there's still communities today that believe in witches but but most of the developed world were just shocked to think of this group of kind of of kind of Irish natives and and it was sort of around the time when obviously the home rule question was happening um people were agitating for land rights people were agitating for you know just the chance to govern you know our own country as ourselves and this case became so influential in the court in um, the parliament it was kind of like well look what happens when we leave these people to to do you know um, look what the Irish when they're left yeah, that was God. a big reason why it became famous as well. It was that it was. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 And the poem, the poem. I still want is: Are you, are you a witch, or are you a fairy, yeah. or are you a, the wife of Bridget Clare? Or, yeah. Michael Cleary, yeah. yeah. Michael Cleary, Michael Cleary. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. God damn it, Michael Cleary. We have to fuck up home rule <laughs> yeah. first. Yeah, bollocks. Um, bad guy in it. Him and the entire town. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, there were about 13 type. people in the room, like 12 or 13 people in the room at the time. Like they were, if they weren't doing it, they were watching it. Um, it's just horrible to think about. Horrific. I think Horrific. as well. But, like, um, but I think okay, it's really like, it's a very interesting, um, and I do think a very kind of topical and relevant thing to think about like the way that folklore spreads in groups and the way that like conspiracy theories spread in groups because like mm. that has by no means gone away. And in fact, in some ways the internet has, has accelerated and exacerbated that because it's very easy now to find a group that will support you in your delusion. It was harder back in the day actually to find people because Michael Cleary probably met a fair few people who were like, I know Michael, come on, cop on like. But he just, he was able to ignore them. He was able to find enough people who were like, yeah, no, sounds legit. She's a fairy. Let's let's do something about that. And like, 
there's something about the the facility with which you can do that online where you can find a community that would be like yes i agree with absolutely everything that you're saying and if anybody says hang on now maybe there's another perspective here you can just block them and only listen to the people who will um facilitate and prop you up and agree with you and like we can see how what a what an effect that's having in you know yeah. politics and in in the the kind of fragmentation of things um that people like and it's so incredibly difficult to persuade somebody or to argue somebody out of a conviction like if somebody believes in fairies or QAnon or the flat earth it's really really hard to get them to see reality because these things are these mindsets become so entrenched and like that that thing of having a community that agrees with you uh you're like no no no. me and my friends know the truth and you guys are not saying the truth it's it's quite scary again it's a facet of human psychology that is disturbing yeah a little bit of the bits that i picked up of was like the, the evidence was that she used to again walk around the fairy fort um, mm. And she used to go there on a regular enough basis. So, of course, she was with one of them. You know, she was probably very unhappily married uh, to, mm. um, to an absolute bollocks who decided he wanted to kill her. That's disturbing. Yeah. I mean, like, of all the fairy, of all the creatures, of all the, like, uh, you know, the, the facts that we have such a, a beautifully fragrant um, mythology. Um, cat just jumped my cat just jumped on me (laughs) fairies um he just just jumps up and knocks stuff over whenever he wants um say hello to the world thank you um anyway leave him up there we'll get a few more views (laughs) (laughs) um he's just on my leg now uh but i guess there's just like there's there's so many creatures out uh, in irish mythology we didn't we barely touched on 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 some on 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 them you know and like the farlia the there's there's lots of other ones that are coming to my head but one of the most interesting aspects is the, the water creatures and to move on to our last story and our last topic of this podcast which has been very enjoyable um is to talk about the soul cages and specifically the marrow and um in fact when the, re- the reason we came across you ruth was because sir and i were on our way over to interview um Andres the stack and we listened to your Merrow stories uh, because I wanted to go for a swim in the sea I wanted to hear about some stories about the sea and I was like oh selkies, Merrows, mermaids yeah. also, also Aaron it's really, really... met a selkie one day so you know full on, full on met a selkie oh, wow you know? Uh, Not many people could say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, was... I went swimming with with a selkie. He went swimming with a selkie. He went swimming with a very personable <laughs> seal who decided to hang out and then decided oh. to come and like grab his leg when he was trying to get out of the water. Oh my gosh! You're like, oh, oh yeah. I was I was swimming along. I was just swimming, and he kept on like kind of bumping my feet, and I was like, that's slightly terrifying, but also, oh. Um, <laughs> it was kind of cute, and then when I got eventually walked out of the water, he like he he looked, he watched me the whole whole way, and then just sent me a little flipper and dive back down. He was I feel like so much of Irish mythology, um, culture, and folklore could be described as that's slightly terrifying, but also oh. <laughs> I 
I mean, you're not wrong. Um, the marrows are really interesting because I've seen tales of female marrows with long green hair, kind of sharp teeth who drown men and devour them. Uh, uh, marrows are often often ones that, that capture capture men and, and lure them into the deep dark dark depths. Um, also, the selkies are the ones that you constantly see in in Scotland as well of the the story of the Lady of Galaris, as well as you know men capturing the cap, not giving it back because they think they own, own the woman then, and that's the way to get a bride. Uh, we um, spoke about that a bit before, is... actually, on the on the Selkie episode that we did. I think it was kind of around this time last year, wasn't it, on our podcast? Um, but uh, t- so, yeah. talk to us about talk to us about uh, Selkies and Meros, Ruth, and the Soul Cages. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was yeah, that was one of my favorite episodes to do. I I love um, all this kind of stories about about mermaids, about creatures and people of the sea. Um, I think it's fascinating. Um, but yeah, um, Ireland has a few kind of different ways of talking about the people of the sea. So there's the Maras, as, as you were talking about, um, which are kind of more kind of like the sort of green, fishy kind of mermaids. There's um, the Murdukans, who are kind of closer to sort of sirens. Um, and that's there's a great kind of story about how um, Port Larga, Waterford gets its name, is the port of the time. Oh, which really love that. Yeah, um, which are these kind of Murdukans, which kind of translates to sea singers, and that basically this um, giant of the sort of Fomorian um, early race, kind of mythological race, uh, heard these Murdukans singing, came up close to them, and they were singing and singing, and then when he sort of rebelled into this terrible sea, they like pounced, and there's actually like talk about them having these bodies that are hairy and clawed and and you know it's all about kind of surfaces so you see this beautiful woman on the surface but if you look like into the literal depths of the ocean you see how huge and terrifying they are um wow yeah so it's like it's kind of um it's the same with selkies and marrows like whether they actually kill the person um what they tend to do is bring harm in some sort of way so it might just be that they will kind of cause them to fall in love with them and then leave them astray. So back in the past, it was kind of this story about femme fatales, about sort of trusting these kind of strange foreign women. Um, If you kind of fall in love with a woman from outside your community, well, what do you expect to happen? You're going to, you know, you're going to meet some kind of bad end. Um, Going to leave you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's really... So it's really interesting to see how in like the modern age now we look at it and we're like, well, hang on a second. Like, what was the man doing um, trying to entice this creature and trying to trap this creature into living with him? So we see it from a, like a totally different perspective. So the Selkie stories, which were kind of more kind of fun, more kind of um, like a warning to men back in the past. Now we're like, gosh, the poor seal maiden who was like condemned to live on, on the land until she found her, her seal skin again. It's That's totally, a really interesting totally point that I, I love that you mm-hmm. picked up on that because like it, initially it was, and again, it's cultural context is how you perceive a story. It's, how, it's the it's the vehicle through which you're actually per- perceiving it. And the fact that it was a warning for men, be sure to keep her under lock and key. Yeah. You know, oh, jazz now, uh, Tommy. Uh, and then I know we're going to look back and they go, what? No. No, 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 that's not okay. That's definitely not okay, guys. When it's like, oh yeah, what if women are people? What if, what if, yeah. what if healthy women are people? <laughs> oh no, this is now totally different. 
<laughs> Consequences. Whole other fucking ball game. Um, and again, again, I fucking love that Port Larga uh, story because the mm. Fomorian lad had, it was eaten and then they throw his shin bone back. Yeah, yeah, it's caught. Yeah, all that was yeah. left was his thigh bone, and it washed up on the shore of um of the shore the shore of Waterford, and the people uh, kind of drank wine out of it for some bizarre reason, and then Waterford became known as the port of the thigh, as you do. <laughs> sure. Yes. Yes. If you've got a Fomorian type one hanging around, yeah. Um, what what else? What else would you do it? Uh, lads, yeah. I'm gonna have to go because it's Hang on. eleven, and I have it's, it's eight o'clock. At eight o'clock. At eight o'clock. We're, we're, we're winding down. We're winding down. Hang yeah. on, give us. We, one we, more we thing got, to talk about. Okay. <laughs> we we have one more thing to talk about. We have one more thing to talk about. So you you just calm calm the cacks. Don't worry. You're very calm, and she's gonna be very calm very soon at eight o'clock when she's doing a storytelling for Yarn Festival uh, in collaboration with Fine Sheen doing sound bath and storytelling. However, I do want to talk about the soul cages specifically yeah. because that story again linked into uh, that book from oh, yeah. uh, that guy that I couldn't pronounce. Uh, Ruth, can you tell us a little bit about, again, how this story kind of might have originated from, where it might not have actually come from at all at all, yeah. and how it's now in our oral tradition as we pass it on, even though some lad, it turns out, might have made it up. Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, like The Little Mermaid, it's like a literary fairy tale. So it began as some, a story that was written down rather than um, kind of having an or, a completely oral tradition route. So um, there was a man uh, called Thomas Crofton Croker um, who published a collection um, it was called Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland in um, 1825. Um, so he was actually quite a bit earlier. Um, he had the scoop, the kind of OG um, uh, fairy tale and folklore tradition of Ireland, um, like about 75 years before um, Lady Gregory was writing about them, for example. So he's not that famous anymore, but I think he's such an interesting person to like know about and, and talk about. Um, basically, I kind of think of him as being quite similar to kind of Ireland's sort of Hans Christian Andersen, where he sort of collected folk tales and got people to collect them, but then he used those uh, folk tales to create his his own kind of stories that had, you know, a proper beginning, middle, middle and end, and were sort of more kind of tied up in the way that folk tales generally are. They're a bit more kind of um, flow, flowing and sort of changeable than that. Um, but yeah, he was hugely admired by the brothers Grimm so they published that book in Germany he wrote essays for some of their collections it's just really fascinating to know that there was like this kind of collaboration going on between these you know heavyweights like the brothers brothers Grimm and European and that they were looking to Ireland at the time as well um it's just fascinating the only thing is and I can like kind of so the only thing is I think part of the reason why he was like not quite as um, remembered is that he was a bit of a bit of a, a bit of a bollocks. He was yeah, a bollocks. not, not perfect a bollocks. guy. So the Soul Cages is actually written by a man called Thomas Keatley, who was kind of one of his assistants for writing the book. But Thomas Crofton Croker kind of wanted all the glory for himself, so he didn't cite his sources. He didn't kind of give credit to where credit was due. Um, and so Tom, Thomas Keatley, even though he wrote it, he wasn't like given much of like any kind of like claim or credit in the book and so he became quite annoyed and made his feelings known sort of and so I think because of that that sort of 
rightly so damaged Thomas Crofton Croker's reputation and so um, if you look on the Wikipedia page there's like a whole kind of uh you know centuries old scandal to, to like read your way through um, I love it I love yeah, it it's, it's so scandalous it's like yeah. I, I'm so they're, they're kind of going around again like Eddie Lennon is a character who's mm. who's doing that now currently kind of going finding out stories and, and writing them down rewriting them and keeping them alive and trying to keep stories alive I guess like as you go back and as you mentioned Lady Gregory there keeps on being like these great characters who write these stories down who want to keep it alive and then you have this story which and originally I can't remember the name of it but it was in a, a German story apparently or it was there was a German version of the same story the uh, of of the again it's on the Wikipedia page <laughs> um, uh, and where the soul cages kind of came from and there seems to have been links and there seems to have been little ingredients and we, we sprinkle in little details to make it more Irish we, we have it the Merrow we have it on the west coast we have a a, a town a, a character yeah. and all of we, we have all the right ingredients and it's really really Irish but it's like the the it's supplemented like a, it's kind of transplanted into a, this this kind of sh- uh, story that's already made and that kind of brings us to the like the final point of how we as human beings, as as people who are in cultures, recreate stories constantly and how we're continually evolving our mythology and our folk tales and our belief systems. And we're kind of always going back and toying with them a little bit and looking back at what was the original source? What was the original story of Cucullin? And like, it's just impossible to find it. And for me, I think like when we talk about myths versus folk tales often the myths are just more complicated you know the greek myth the pantheon of gods the pantheon in the norse mythologies they're just there's just they're widespreading and there's just more tentacles and they've they've been there longer and they're interlinked and they're a big massive series that just never got finished and or put on tv and the where the folk tales seem to be just little snippets and kind of standalone and often represent uh something a little bit more about superstition or a particular place or a particular land um area um and so that's kind of where we're, we're seeing that interplay between oral an oral tradition a folk tale uh and a, a mythological tale kind of kind of link in and, and then continue to evolve as well i guess that's my closing statements <laughs> do you really to add to that ruth <laughs> um yeah i think that's so true that um i kind of think of as well as kind of tentacles that spread out i kind of think of oral storytelling as something a bit like chinese whispers so you're going chinese nice. um, whispers across um like time and generations so trying to interpret what the the, your grandfather's grandfather is meant when they told the story as opposed to what you mean when you tell it today is such an interesting interesting thing and a, a way to kind of feel closer to the people of the past I think Beautiful, I think Yeats was the one or was it, yeah I think it was Yeats who said uh, mythology is something that everybody wrote and nobody wrote at the same time um, which is kind of like yeah, That's that makes sense uh, Sarah, do you have anything to add? Where closing statements are you still there? <laughs> uh, only that I have to close now because I really do have to go. Uh, and thank you so much, Ruth, for joining us. Um, and it was such a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. No, and I hope people will go and check out your podcast, uh, Unreal Irish Folktales, which is great. Yeah. Um, uh, and reference all of the, the things that we talked about this evening. 
And uh, yeah, I'm going to go get ready for a storytelling sandbath with yarn. <laughs>